Hey, welcome back to Dad Conversations, where we spotlight successful, interesting, and normal people who happen to be dads. Today, I spoke to Brandon Smith, the workplace therapist. He's an entrepreneur, consultant, adjunct professor at Emory University. He's an author, podcaster, father of three, and all-around cool guy. Like my favorite adjunct professors, Brandon is an expert who also happens to be down-to-earth and easy to talk to. I asked him all about his work as an executive coach and workplace consultant for a little over 30 minutes. Then we got to hear about his life story, mentors, hobbies, and his approach to being a husband and dad. Tons of good ideas around parenting. I particularly loved his method for instilling accountability and ownership with his kids. This was a good one. Enjoy. Brandon, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited about it. Yeah, me too, man. I uh, found you through LinkedIn. I guess you're you're friends with one of my favorite professors from from Duke, uh, Patrick Noonan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Patrick and I go way, way back. He was a professor of mine. That's that's how old Patrick is. <laughs> no way. He's, he was your professor. That's awesome. That's right. I, I'm glad I got to throw that little dig to Patrick. I hope he hears this. <laughs> yeah, he's super old. <laughs> no, he was actually the uh, only professor that ever uh, rocked out with his guitar in front of the classroom. So he's certainly young at heart. Yeah, he is. Yeah, he is. Really cool guy. Yeah, I enjoyed his class. Um, so you are the workplace therapist. Uh, you're an adjunct professor. You've you're an author, podcaster, uh, doing a lot. I've we've got so much to talk about. Um, I want to start with a, a question that kind of I, I think got you on the track towards being the workplace therapist, and that's uh, you've said that early in your career you had the world's worst boss. So uh, could you tell us a little about that? I'm, I'm curious to hear a good story here. Yeah. So okay. So. Um... Undergraduate degree, uh, I got a degree in communications. I'm like I always kid with people, uh, like most good communication majors, I was unemployed at graduation. <laughs> what am I going to do with this thing? And I ended up getting a job. So I'd worked lots of other jobs, but this was my first full-time job. I was going to be the assistant manager of a retail store. And this was a, a privately held company. They had 15 stores. And I was going to be the assistant manager at one of these stores. And my boss was the son-in-law of the business. So the woman who started the business, her daughter marries this guy. He's my boss. So I show up to my first day of work. He greets me at the door of the store, and he says, hey, I'm so glad you're here. Um, but before you get started, I have a task for you. And waiting for you in the back room is the current assistant manager of the store. But he has no idea you're coming. So your job is to go back there. You fire him, and you get his job. And that was totally how he rolled. He, he loved – he loved to do all the things that bosses should never do. Like he loved surprise visits to try and catch you doing something wrong. So he'd, he'd make a surprise visit and he'd say, oh, I don't like what Sharon's wearing up front. Go fire her. I had to do more layoffs in the first six months of that job than any other, actually any other time in my career. I mean, that was the most number of of layoffs I ever had to do in a short period of time. Just because that's how he nuts. Just how he rolled. Career and and probably hesitant to do that, but at the same time feeling compelled when he's like, "Go fire them," you know, that's got to be tough. That's twenty three years old, twenty three, twenty four, and he's just, yeah, fire that person, fire that person. And and he was he would go into stores and people disliked him so much the entire store would walk out. They would just quit on the spot. 
So I'd get these frantic phone calls, and he'd say, "You drop everything and drive to the town center mall because store because everyone just quit, and you need to now be the manager until I find a replacement." So that was how he rolled, and it was during that time when I was working with him that I had a couple, three big epiphanies about my life because I really had no. You know, we talk about kids trying to figure out what they want to do in college and what their career goals were. I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know until I had this experience, this kind of spicy experience. And I learned really three things. First, um, I realized work shouldn't have to suck. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, it is work, but it should be a source of fulfillment and meaning and purpose, not a source of pain, depression, anxiety. So that was my first realization. My second realization was um, if this guy was any indication of the state of leadership in the world, uh, I, I really wanted to fix that. So that was my second one. And my third one was that was really where my purpose was born that I'm still operating off of today. And that is to um, eliminate all workplace dysfunction everywhere forever, uh, having no idea what I'd signed up for. So that really, <laughs> that experience with that boss uh, really kind of set me on the path that I've been on for, gosh, uh, a long time now, um, probably 25 years, something like that. Wow. So, so tell me about that path where did you go you you noticed those lessons and and kind of where did that take you for the next 5 10 20 years yeah so this was kind of a i think i had that job with him in 1996 97 so we're talking late 90s back then executive coaching was a was a kind of a thing but there was no there was no executive coaching associations really there was no like certificate programs you couldn't just decide you're going to be an executive coach and go do that. But that's what I knew I wanted to go do. So uh, I kind of had to roll my own path. So the first step of that was I, I went back and got a master's in counseling because I wanted to really develop my coaching and clinical skills, my ability to kind of work with people and kind of listen closely and kind of help kind of guide, coach them. And so I um, did that and I uh, practiced in inpatient setting, uh, really helping people with kind of all of life's curveballs, chemical dependency, mental illness, uh, depression, you know, behavioral disorders, you, you name it. So I, I did some clinical work for a number of years. And then I left the clinical world and went and got a job with a company called Agon. Um, and their division in uh, North America that I worked for uh, served primarily community banks and credit unions. So I went around working with community banks and credit unions, kind of helping them doing training around kind of customer service and applying some of the skills I'd learned in the workplace. And then uh, I left that environment and got my MBA. I knew I always wanted to get my MBA so I could uh, ultimately, at least understand the, the language of business. So I um, went to Emory's um, Business School, and uh, that was where Patrick was, one of my professors. I uh, got my MBA in, in 2005, and uh, to give, give you kind of a mini part of the story, so I'd actually had a, uh, a job offer to go join Deloitte in their human capital practice. And so um, I was, uh, I really wanted to go do that. I thought that was what I wanted to go do. And when I got the job offer, I was literally standing in Northside Hospital here in Atlanta, and my second child was born the day that I got the offer. So my wife's in the hospital bed and get this offer, and it's you know great salary and signing bonus. Um, and ironically enough, by the way, um, his name is Noah, and our basement flooded while he was being born, which I think is no way. Of of humor. <laughs> yeah, he's yeah. like That's this will crazy. be you'll like this story later. Trust me. <laughs> So while Noah's being born, our basement's flooding. Um, so um, so I get this job offer, and I'm thinking to myself, do I really want to try? He's my second kid. I've, I've got three kiddos. Abby's my oldest. She's 18. She's a, a freshman at University of Georgia. Noah's now 15. Aaron's 13. And I'm thinking to myself, 
man, do I really want to do 100% travel and leave this young family? I, you know, I don't think I really want to. My wife was like, yeah, we can do this. And I'm, I know my wife, I, I don't think she would have wanted me to do that. So um, I turned down that offer. I stopped um, interviewing and I uh, hung my shingle right after graduation uh, in 2005 and started down this path of kind of being a, a workplace therapist. So um, we can talk more about that later, but uh, that was kind of the journey that kind of, kind of set me off on this. And in the moment, you know, it's often people kind of talk about the entrepreneurial life or however that however that goes. Um, you know, I remember I was thinking about hanging in my shingle. I remember I was thinking, you know, my 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 the image came to mind like this. I was building the ship this whole time and the ship wasn't perfect. I still had holes in the bottom of the ship, but there was never going to be a better time to set sail. I wasn't walking away from an income. I was currently a student broke, so I was just going to be broke a little longer. Um, I, you know, and we really hadn't built up a lifestyle that was built on a lot of money at that time. Um, and I knew I could kind of figure it out. And I remember thinking about all the other entrepreneurs I'd ever heard speak or talk. Um, I never, ever heard a case where an entrepreneur said, you know, I started too early. I should have waited. They, they never said that. There was always, if anything, they would say, gosh, I started too late. I should have started earlier. So I just thought, well, what the heck? Let's let's give wow. it a go. So that was that was kind of what what ultimately kind of started me down the path. So you already had a couple, de- you know, graduate level degrees and worked at some good companies. Probably had a, a fair network. But what did you do as a uh, you know? I don't want to say unemployed, but you're self-employed, you know, entrepreneur with uh, maybe some grad school debt and a family of uh, two kids at the time. Like what? What do you do? What, like, what does that playbook look like? Lots of prayer. Lots and lots of prayer. I would say it was, <laughs> it, was, it was interesting because so my wife was working. She wasn't making enough money to kind of uh, keep us afloat, but she could keep she could kind of steady the the slide, right? And so I needed to make some money. So um, you said I had a network. I actually, actually really, I'm an I'm an uh, I'm an entrepreneur, but I'm also an introvert. So I I did not have a very big network. So I partnered with a guy who was really good at business development. He was good at building those relationships, and I was really good at doing the work. So um, that worked out pretty well for the first couple of years. So the first year, uh, I remember I made about $30,000, and I was really happy about that. And then and then the second year, I made $60,000. Ooh, I really, good I job. Really happy, I was really happy about that. And then the next year, well, and then right about that time, uh, my wife got pregnant with our third kiddo, and she said, I don't want to go back to work after this. And I said, oh, okay. So this is going to be all of me. And then that next year, I made $120,000, which was just enough to kind of cover all of our expenses at, at the time. Hey, I like your trajectory. Just keep doubling. Well, it, it, it was, right? So, so 2005 to 6 was 30. You know, 2006 was 60. 2007 was 120. What happened in 2008? You went to 500,000 that year. No, I'm just kidding. We had, <laughs> that, fantastic, we had that fantastic recession. So I'm, I'm sitting here going, oh, this is great. I think I got to 180 and then it just, boom, just, you know, the recession hit. And the kind of work that I was doing back then was a lot of culture work. I was trying to really work with organizations, help improve their culture, make it healthier. And I've, I've learned since then that culture work is um, fun work and meaningful work, but only happens when the economy's booming. People only really want to work on their culture when the economy's great. The economy's not great. It's the first thing that goes that goes out the That's window. That's kind of like thinks of you think of like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, um, <laughs> first it's just have a job and be grateful for it, and we're not too worried about the culture right now. You just be lucky you didn't get laid off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly right. So my income then was cut by forty percent the next year. Uh, and my wife's still at home, you know, because we got three little kiddos, and I'm trying to figure out kind of how to how to redo this. Um, and that was when I happened to get on NPR as kind of a uh, just a guest, and uh, it was a regional show that they would have every every week called At Work, and it was a call-in show, and and I came on, and they said, oh, that was great, you should come on next week. And that turned into me coming on every week for a couple of weeks, for a couple of years. And um, that's where I got the handle, the workplace therapist. Um, I was on the show with another guy who was also called himself an executive coach, uh, but he was like the exact opposite of me. He was like Bizarro Brandon. Um, and so I was trying to explain how I was different from this guy. And I said, you know, I'm more like a workplace therapist. And that, that handle just kind of stuck. People said, oh, I love that. Uh, and that was really where my brand started, and I kind of started blogging and then doing other work, and 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 refined and changed a little bit of the kind of work that I bring to the world. So a lot of my work now is primarily focused on, uh, to be frank, on pain points, on pain that companies are, are dealing with. So it could be uh, an individual. So I do a lot of executive coaching work. It could be an individual who's very technically strong or highly competent, but gosh, not playing well in the sandbox, throwing hmm. some elbows, stepping on some toes. They hire yeah. to kind of make them make them share their toys a little bit better. Um, it can also be those folks called happy coaching that have been um, either about to or have been promoted maybe one or two levels above what they were before. Uh, it's funny. The last year or so I've been working, I can't tell you how many kind of, kind of late 30-year-olds, early 40-year-olds that are getting like double promoted because folks are retiring and they really need to fill those slots. And so I'm spending a lot of time kind of helping kind of upgrade them really, really quickly. Uh, I do a lot of work with teams, helping improve team dynamics, particularly when there's some kind of a bumpiness there. Mm -hmm. uh, and then just general booster shots on uh, leadership for larger groups. So companies will hire me to come in and say, hey, can you kind of work with our 30 leaders here? You know, it's part of our strategic planning uh, week, but we would love to give kind of a leadership booster shot. Can you do that for us? And I say, sure. So I thought kind of a lot of a lot of what I do today is kind of a more like a more like a physician. I'm kind of treating some of the some of the pain points that either uh, for profits or nonprofits are kind of facing as it comes to uh, creating um, great leaders, but also creating kind of healthy work environments. That's good. That's uh, that's important work. You know, in, in 2020, I think everyone has a renewed appreciation for the value of physicians. And, and the uh, inner capitalist inside of me says that the, the work that you're doing to improve the workplace as a, you know, a, a physician of the workplace is also equally uh, important and valuable for the growth and success of our society, you know? So, amen. amen. Yeah. And, and, you know, and people realize we got things we got to get accomplished. And yet this, this, this person may be causing some problems or this team dynamic is not kind of operating. So can we kind of get that? Can we get that fixed? So yeah. they, they, they call me. So you've been you you've probably seen a lot of workplaces, uh, particularly some that had had challenges, whether with individuals or at a at a group level. I'm, can you tell us about a particularly bad or dysfunctional workplace you've consulted on? Certainly, keep we'll keep it anonymous, I'd imagine. But um, I any or or just uh, anything entertaining that comes to mind when you think of like the the worst cases. So I'm going to answer the question this way. I'm going to kind of put it bucket, put it in the buckets, because every kind of organization has its own particular flavor of dysfunction. So we're going to talk about. Um, I'm going to leave three. So let's start with our big companies. So big company dysfunction. So any company over three billion in revenue, three with a B, is not actually a company anymore. 
Once it hits three billion, it morphs into a government. So, so once a company hits three billion, it's it it's not an indictment, but it is a factual statement. We can look anywhere around the globe, and you find any co company that big, you're you're going to find lots of politics, lots of people who may have with big titles, and no one really knows exactly what they do. It's just it's just what happens when we get that large, and so managing politics becomes a really important factor in those organizations. So I think that's that's a that's part of the dysfunctional challenge that when you're dealing in kind of large corporate environments or large governments for that matter, is that politics can trump performance. You get that um, really heavily in large corporations. You get that really heavily in universities. Politics always trumps performance. It can be very frustrating for people. So I think I think that's one flavor of dysfunction. Uh, that that's one. Uh, second flavor of dysfunction. Let's go other side of the spectrum. Well, let's talk about startups. Oh boy, startups can be great, amazing things, but they can also be challenging. Partly because um, in order to have really healthy environments, we need a couple things. We need um, really clear roles, really clear expectations, and balanced feedback. Those are the three kind of litmus tests I look for. Clear roles, so we know what our job is. Clear expectations, we know what we're trying to accomplish, and then balanced feedback, more positive than negative. Well, typically in startup environments, not only are you kind of running around with your hair on fire, and they've kind of got like the life cycle of a squirrel, um, you know, you, you don't really know exactly what you're, everyone's supposed to do everything. So there's a lot of, of not clear boundaries. So everyone's kind of stepping on each other's toes, working on the same things, a lot of chaos and, uh, frenetic pace. That's exactly uh, what my, what I experienced at working at a startup prior to yeah. joining Cisco. And I was equally, uh, at fault for, for creating that chaos and running with it and not knowing how to manage it. And just, you know, everyone's wearing too many hats and especially anyone who's a leader, you're, you're a, a manager, a leader, uh, a counselor, you know, uh, marriage counselor, therapist, uh, yeah. you know, shrink and, yeah. and coach everything. All that stuff. And the people that really thrive in that environment, create that environment. So they actually don't do, they, they, they can't make the transition when it becomes medium size. Very, get, yes. That they, is... get, they, they get exited because they can't, mm. they want all these different things. And when you say, no, 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 we've gotten bigger. So now you only get this. And now we're going to now put in place more systems and structures. They hate it. it, it they, they just, they hate the, the, the rules and the, and, and the regulations. So often, you know, that first generation of kind of uh, those folks tend to have to leave and drop back down to another startup. Mm, that's, they're, they're, they're kind of they're kind of ADHD. So yeah, it's kind of a little bit of that a little bit of that pace. Totally agree uh, with that. So that that would be the second one, and the third one, and we'll call, kind of end with this one is um, kind of your classic nonprofit. Um, if I <laughs> I hate to pick on nonprofits. I feel like I've been picking on them a lot today. But if I charged based on how much work I have to do, I would charge nonprofits way more than I would charge corporations. They are way more work to try and clean up. Really? Um, you know, oh, yeah. Because um, number one, fundamentally, they do not have feedback cultures. You will never find a nonprofit with a feedback culture. They hate feedback. They hate accountability. Hate it. Huh. Hate it. Because, because it's always taken personal. Because while on the one hand, people are um, really committed to the mission and the purpose of the nonprofit, and we love that, they, can, they, tend to, they tend to wave it as a flag, like, I'm so committed here, don't you dare give me feedback that is not mm -hmm. positive. So, so you, you can't give people feedback, so there's no ability to correct or, or address issues, whether they're behavioral issues or performance issues. Um, and they really don't like boundaries. So they, there's, there's tends to be a lot of codependent relationships inside nonprofits. 
So I, I find more burnout with people working in nonprofits than in corporations because they'll just there can be rescuing as a kind of a vibe that happens in nonprofits. It just creates a lot of frenetic chaos. And they just don't like it when you try and put in healthy uh, structures like clear roles, clear expectations and balanced feedback, which, by the way, you would need in any marriage. Any healthy marriage yeah. has got clear roles, clear expectations and balanced feedback. Well, they come back to me and they say, Brandon, you're trying to make us corporate. We don't like you. And I'll say, no, I'm not. I'm just trying to make you healthy. So uh, you end up with a lot of challenges in those environments, too. So, so that gives you a little bit of flavor. We got big corporations. We got and 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 other big kind of organizations like universities. We've got nonprofits, and then we, of course we've got the startups. All different flavors of messy. Interesting. I I want to come back to the uh, politics associated with big big companies, but while we're on the topic of nonprofits, um, do you feel like there is a lack of talent going into nonprofits? Um, my assumption is that generally they're not able to pay as much and um, and or they're looking for people willing to take one for the team for a, and and work for a cause that they're particularly passionate about um what's your experience been generally speaking i wouldn't say it's a lack of talent i would say mm -hmm. a lot of profits have some really talented folks they do mm -hmm. not want to be told what to do and they okay. remove their commitment to the mission and the fact they're taking a pay cut as reasons why they shouldn't have to be told what to do. Yeah, I took a pay. I could be making, you know, X amount more in the private sector. So don't give me any criticism for anything I've done here. Right. So when I work with nonprofit teams, like senior teams, um, they, they rarely collaborate or align very well. Because they just don't want to, they don't want to have to collaborate or align. They want to do whatever they want to do with their function. And they say, hmm. I'm super committed, and I took a big pay cut, so you know, I've sacrificed a lot. Don't you tell me I have to do things a certain way. I'm going to do so, them the way that I see fit. That so what do you do? a little more of a righteousness about it. What do you do when you go into that kind of an environment? Um, sometimes they push back and just say, hey, Brandon, we don't want any of your advice. But when it when it works, like what does it look like, and, and how are you able to help them? Well, it's generally trying to get them aligned around what are they trying to accomplish and and get them willing to make those um, commitments to each other. So in, in nonprofit settings, it doesn't always work, but what I'll tend to do is um, do a, a we're talking about senior teams. It's a combination of both team work where we're doing stuff together as teams, but I'm also trying to do um, individual work with them as well. So maybe there will be a couple of pairs, like pairings that need to work really well together, like two departments. And so I may do, it's almost like couples counseling. I'll sit down with the two of them and say, all right, let's talk about what each of you need. How do we want to operate better together? How can you commit to kind of connecting with each other weekly to make sure you're on the same page? Put in place a little more of that structure and get them committed to working with each other. Um, it, it, it's, it's challenging because they do, you know, often people think that nonprofit land is um, not a high pace world. That's not true. They're working very long hours at a very frenetic pace. Uh, they just tend to not work as smart as they do hard. And and so because they're typically all kind of doing their own thing. So it's trying to get them to work a little more aligned. Uh, but they've got to be willing to make that make that adjustment and make that commitment. Wow. So let's let's go back to larger enterprises above that three billion dollar fresh threshold where uh, you said it'd be political. It's like a government of its own. Um, what can be done about it? Because 
I see your what you're saying, and I I agree. Actually, I think that that's a big part of it's just human nature, and and everyone hates politics uh, when it's harmful for you, and and loves it, and and takes advantage of it when it's helpful for you, right? So, how do you go about um, making an impact at a client when when they've got that kind of scale and they have those very real political challenges? So you. I, Maybe one day I will be able to, to say I've found a solution to stop politics. <laughs> this is not that day. <laughs> so 15 years, I have not found a, a solution for that. Uh, at this point, I would say it's really more about managing it more effectively. So I think one of the um, biggest no-nos that I see leaders do is they say, I just don't want to play politics. I, I'm not going to get involved. That's how I'm going to solve this. I'm going to be better than everyone else. I just won't get involved. I'll, I'll do my thing, my results will speak for themselves. Now, you know, I, I want to go back to this. In universities, typically, politics trumps performance, just to be clear. Not a, not a nice thing to say, but it's pretty, pretty consistent across the board. Um, in big corporations, politics and performance probably go hand in hand. Yeah, so, I was just thinking when you said that, I was like, that, that, that person with that mindset, half the time they get the promotion, the other half the time they're disgruntled because the networker got the promotion over them. That's exactly right. So I think, you know, and, and, and so let me talk about it in more of a um, practical standpoint. So once you hit director level in any large organization, that's where politics begin. You really don't have to deal with it as a manager. Just focus on your own stuff. Do a really great job. You hit even senior manager, you hit director. Now you got to pay attention to what the person to your left and right are, is doing. And you got to be aware of that. You got to start trying to align with other directors. So when I coach my clients, I say, you need to spend 10% of your time every week on alignment when you hit director, making sure you're going to lunch with each other back when we could actually do that. Or you just connect with people to learn what they're going, what's going on in their department and you share what's going on with, on yours. And you kind of work to try and build those bridges and align. With every promotion, you have to add another 10% to that. So by the time most people sit back and think, oh, a C-level leader in a big publicly traded company, you know what she's doing? You know what he's doing? Strategy. No, nope. they're herding cats. 50 to 60% of their time is alignment. They're spending maybe 10% of their time every week on strategy. Maybe, if they're lucky. Most of it is just alignment. It's managing politics and managing stakeholders. That's that's the majority of a C-level leader's life. Um, and so, because it goes out 10% every time you move up, move up the yeah. chain. And the CEO's got to report to the street and to the board. It's all stake. Everyone's got stakeholders. Yep. And that's, they're spending most of their time on stakeholder alignment and, and having those meetings and conversations, not so much about strategy. So, um, so, so that's also even a question for people who are going down that path. It's like, do, do you like that? I mean, you may have these big aspirations to be a VP or SVP one day, but means you're spending 30, 40% of your time on alignment. Is that what you want to be doing? Or would you rather be, you know, building stuff because because alignment's important but it's re you're really not hands-on building anything you're aligning the people who are building so you know it, that's that's often a, a question that you know I'll, I'll pose to people as they're moving up the chain this is you gotta be comfortable with that because it's it comes part and parcel with the with, with the job hmm. that's good so i'm you uh recently wrote a book and i believe it's called the hot sauce principle can it you hot sauce. Uh, sounds sounds pretty spicy. Can you tell us a little <laughs> about the hot sauce principle? Yeah. So um, just to give a little bit of context, we're going to go back in time at least seven months 
um, before we landed into Coven land. Still true today, but definitely even more so before all the changes that we've gone through recently. Uh, my experience has been with all the organizations I work with, doesn't matter, they can be all the ones I listed off and more. Um, two things are true, doesn't matter where they are in the world. Time's our most precious resource, not money, it's time. And everything is urgent all the time. And so that's really where the book is all about. The book is how you how do you live and lead in a world where everything is urgent all the time. And the reason why I call it the hot sauce principle is because it hit me not too many years ago that urgency, which is what we're all dealing with, is like hot sauce. And a little bit of urgency is great. You need to put a little bit of urgency, a little, a little bit of hot sauce on something. You know, it, 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 it gets flavor, focus. It helps us kind of prioritize, even stimulate action like we want relief. And it's a good thing. But you cover everything in hot sauce. Man, you're overwhelmed. You're burned out. You can't taste anything. So when something really is urgent, you, you can't tell because your mouth's on fire. So yeah. uh, it's, the book is really all about how do you manage the hot sauce in your life? Both what you're putting on yourself and, and, and it, both 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 with and others, maybe maybe your team, maybe your kiddos at home or your spouse. Um, but also, how do you manage it when your boss is like everything coming out of their kitchens is covered in hot sauce? How do you how do you tell them, hold on, boss? No, 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 no. We can't have hot sauce on everything. How do you yeah. do that? So the book's really about managing managing hot sauce in life. Did you reach out to um, Frank's Red Hot, the uh, makers oh. of that sauce? No, I, they, I, I, I probably I mean, should. They're, yeah, they're. Uh, I've got a big bottle of it in my fridge. I make some buffalo dip. It's pretty. It's pretty good. Um, not going to brag too much, but it's pretty solid. But uh, <laughs> aside of the uh, the jar, it's like uh, their their logo or whatever. It's like we we um, put this on everything. And uh, yeah. so anyway, you you could do some creative marketing there with them. Talk about. Their, I don't know. You're right. Anyway. Um, that's cool. So yeah, urgency. I agree. It's, it's, um, you know, it's like hitting your, hitting the boost. You can't hit a, hit the, uh, the booster shot all the time. You gotta, you gotta live life without, uh, without creating that kind of urgency. Cause then it's like, it's like at work. Sometimes you get 16 priorities to focus on. It's like, okay, so we're focusing on nothing because everything's a priority. Amen, brother. Amen. Yeah, totally. The, the, the companies that have done the best job of this, particularly in the last six months during COVID, have had somewhere between three to five priorities. And the, and the senior leader that has been really focused, these are the three to five. Now, yes, every department's going to have their own three to five, but they've all got to kind of tie into those big three to five. The, the ones who have not been as successful are the ones who said everything's urgent, everything's a priority. Yeah. Like you said, that means you're really saying nothing's nothing is urgent, nothing's a priority. If everything is, yeah, so, I, I I'm like credit to every manager and director who just says, okay, if the VP is pushing these five, we're gonna reinforce that, and push these five. We're not gonna create an additional five because if you've got five priorities for every person in your chain, you know, <laughs> it's chaos. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so you are also an adjunct professor uh, at teaching at your alma mater. Is that right? That's right. It seems to me as someone who I like teaching, but my view of having gone through the um, education system as a student, it seems like there'd be a little more bureaucracy than I'd want to put up with as a professor. So my view is like being an adjunct professor is kind of the sweet spot. Seems like it'd be awesome. What, what's your experience been? Adjunct professor. 
Generally speaking, yes. Um, generally speaking, it's been great. I, I've I've enjoyed all of it. Uh, where it becomes tricky is, remember, I said this early on, and I want to be really clear about saying it again. Politics tends to trump performance in universities. So you're fine, as several people have coached me throughout the years, uh, you're fine as long as you're not doing something someone else wants to do. Once you have something shiny, you know, um, it's quite easy for um, a bully to steal your lunch money and no one's going to say anything. So that's where it becomes challenging. That's where it becomes really, really tricky. So it, so the adjunct faculty that really are, are the happiest are the ones that have got their class, they teach a class. No one, no tenured faculty wants to teach that class. And so, you know, you're, you're fine. But once you're doing something that a tenured faculty member wants to do, um, it's, it's, a, it's a caste system. So universities are caste systems. And, and it's very much, you know, it, just like any caste system, there are better thans. So you're a tenured faculty. You are, you are the best. You can do whatever you want to. And then there's teaching track faculty, and then they, they, then they come next. And then there's staff, and then they come next. And then there's adjuncts, and they're kind of bottom. So you just have to be real careful that as long as you don't, don't get too close to the caste system, you're going to be fine. You're going to be frustrated <laughs> if you get part of the caste system. So they go, Here, here's some class that literally no one else wants to teach, uh, adjunct group, any, anyone want it? And every now and then it's something that's actually exciting that you really want to teach. Well, what would be some of your uh, favorite classes that you've you've particularly enjoyed teaching? Oh, man. So many. I mean, anything that involves um, really communication in, in the workplace is, is my favorite. So my area of expertise tends to, is kind of all around the leadership communication space. So that can be, how do you more effectively communicate as a leader? And, and that's everything from, you know, leading change to kind of establishing kind of culture for companies. Um, it can also be about giving feedback, having difficult conversations. Uh, love, convert, love classes around becoming, building high-performing teams and being better at being team members. Also great. And then the other area that I tend to do a lot of teaching in would be things like everything from um, influence, leading other leaders, managing your personal brand, and then ultimately executive presence. So all about the, all those dynamics, uh, uh, it's just fun stuff for me. Cool. Yeah, you got a, a broad portfolio there to work with. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. It's, but the same, same general bucket of playing nice in the sandbox. Like, how do you do that? And what does that look like? Um, you know, and things like things that are, um, you know, kind of fun, like executive presence. Well, executive presence is a real thing that you get evaluated on, but then it looks different if you're a MailChimp versus Home Depot. Those are two mm. very different places and executive presence is going to look different. So how do you, what are, what are the similarities versus differences? So I just think that that kind of stuff is, is fun because, you know, it's, it's, there's never kind of all, rarely is there a one size fits all for a lot of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. There's a, there's a reason why. Uh, it's a thriving industry of, of uh, executive coaching and, and workplace coaching. Certainly a lot of need for it. And you can't just come in with a pre-populated deck to, with all the solutions. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you also are a podcaster. Tell me, tell me a little about your podcast and what's your approach. So I've had my podcast now three and a half years. Um, and it has, it, when we first started, it was podcasting was fairly, I guess, not near as common as it is today. So, so broadly, it was about curing dysfunction in the workplace. Um, over the years, it's really focused, and the name of the podcast is the Workplace Therapist Show, and it's really focused in on how to help people have 
better conversations and healthier relationships at work. That's the real focus. Hmm. So everything from asking for a raise to having that difficult conversation with a boss or a coworker to just, you know, um, leading other leaders and influencing. It can be any or all those things. Just all about having the having the better conversations and making those relationships a little bit better. I like what you did there, targeting that uh, to a very broad audience, because I, almost anyone can listen to that and and pick up something that'd be helpful. Because we all have conversations. If it was, if the podcast is all about a uh, you know executive strategy for C level, it's like, all right, well, it doesn't really apply to ninety nine percent of us. Yeah, but if it's about like, how do you ask for a raise, get more money? Well, yeah, how do I do that? Like, that's good. Or how do you have that difficult conversation with the coworker that? It's just driving you crazy. Well, well yeah, we, we all have that. I mean, it just happens. Yep, no doubt. Um, okay, well, before we get into your uh, personal story a little bit on your origin story and your um, mentors and hobbies and random questions, uh, one more thing. As a workplace therapist, you've seen a ton of workplaces. Uh, you've been in the game for, for several years. What are your thoughts on the open office floor plan? Is that a fad? Is there is there something good to it? I, there's a lot of people who think it's the best thing since sliced bread. Almost everyone I know who has been a part of it on the employee side is not a huge fan. What what's your take? Um, my I'm trying to think of a nice polished way to say it, but I think the simplest way is it's a fad. It's a fad. There are some people that like it. Most people that I've encountered don't. And there's some practical reasons why it's not very helpful. Um, so um, it, it can be distracting. Um, some people really like their workspaces and like to have that privacy to focus. You can't, you can't do that. And then some conversations, frankly, shouldn't be held in public. You know, if you're in HR and you're dealing with an employee issue, if you're in legal and you're dealing with legal-related issues, if you're a C-level executive, you're talking about an acquiring a business, that's not something you do out in the open workspace. Um, and frankly, even, even a few nuggets of that can create rumors, which can really cause issues. So I don't like it from a communication standpoint because it doesn't allow you to um, control and manage the content that is coming out to your team. They may overhear something and then pretty soon rumors get, get stirred up and it, it becomes a challenge. Uh, it also is not um, favored by introverts. So if you've got strong introverts in your kind of organization, they're not going to be, you know, yay on the uh, open workspace. Um, they're going to prefer something with a little more uh, privacy and a little more um, just, just more of their own personal space. So uh, I think there's a time and place for it, but I think that um, it's not for everybody. So where I think it works really well is, uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see more organizations go to something like this, is more of the hoteling concept, if you're familiar with that, where you know, you've know you got a smaller commercial space that you're running out. It's got all meeting rooms and kind of like an open, almost like a library or a coffee shop kind of feel. And you can just, you can reserve a desk there, or you can just kind of come in and hang out and do some work. So you can meet for meetings, but then the rest of the time you're working out of your home office. Uh, I'm hearing a lot of companies talk about that being their their their, their new normal going forward, where they're yeah. still going to have office space, but it's going to be like a third of what they had before, or maybe a quarter of what they had before, and it's primarily primarily just about you know meetings and then people that really need that kind of social connection. Everyone else can just kind of work from home. Yeah. 
Interesting. Thanks for going. In. That's a, a personal, a topic of personal interest that I've talked about greatly uh, many times with friends over the years. So good yeah. to hear your your thoughts as an expert. Um, all right. So let's get to know you a little bit. Tell me where did you grow up? What type of kid were you? What were you interested in when you were a kid? All that stuff. Oh my gosh. So um, I was born in Dayton, Ohio. My dad was uh, an engineer. He worked for Mead Paper Company his entire career. So the co- Mead no longer exists in its prior form. It's gotten acquired a couple times over. Um, that industry's gone through a lot of like consolidation. Um, but we moved from paper mill town to paper mill town. So you can kind of think of like, um, you know, the office Dunder Mifflin. Like that was I, I was <laughs> I was part of a paper company. Like that was for that was where my dad worked. He worked for there, like I said, thirty eight years. So. You know, we started in uh, Dayton, Ohio, then we moved to Chillicothe, Ohio, and then we ultimately kind of settled down in Atlanta. Um, I was the youngest of three boys. I had two older brothers. One was 12 years older than me. The other was 11 years older than me. Um, Both of them were adopted. So my parents were told um, they couldn't have kids. And so I I showed up. Surprise! Surprise! Um, And so I think, and both of my brothers were in and out of trouble, particularly my older brother, Chris. He was in trouble a lot. So I think between that and everything else, I think they had their hands full. So I was, for the most part, I was pretty much left alone to just kind of raise myself. Like I remember days, um, you know, go, you know, making my own lunch and little lunch sack and then just going off into the woods, maybe by myself or with friends you know, all the way until, you know, it got dark at night and then I come home. That was just, that was, that was <laughs> what we did. I mean, there was no, there was no like real guidance or oversight. You just kind of went, went wherever you wanted to, uh, whenever you wanted to. I mean, I'll tell you this funny story. I mean, I just, this is, this is really creepy. Um, I remember like just getting up early in the morning and, and, you know, on Saturday morning looking for somebody to go play with. So I'd be like five years old. So I would just go into neighbor's houses, just walk in their house. Everyone's house was unlocked. So you just walk in their house. I'd be walking around. Everyone's asleep. I'm walking around in people's bedrooms. Somebody's awake. Nobody's awake. <laughs> I mean, it was just, just you know, that, that was that was how I grew up. So I guess um, to how what kind of kid I was, I was probably pretty curious. I loved art, so I was always doing artwork. Uh, loved art, just loved doing drawing, and um, I had no problems doing that hours all by myself. I played a lot by myself because I didn't have a lot of, you know, my brothers were all busy. Um, uh, so probably that probably made me more introverted um, than than most, I would say. Um, but yeah, I'd say I'm pretty creative. I always love being creative and kind of doing my own thing, which ultimately probably translated into, you know, be being an, an entrepreneur. Yeah, that's cool. So um, you mentioned your father worked at a paper plant. Um, tell me a little about him and his approach to parenting. What's what's one thing that he really nailed as a father? That's a good question. Uh, I think he modeled really well. So my dad was, he, he grew up in Indiana. Um he's he was older when he had me so he was 40 when i was born um i'm 46 now he's 86 he's still alive uh and so he grew up like you know we're talking kind of depression world war ii kind of era i'm sure that kind of played into his kind of um style as a as a parent so he was your typical kind of midwesterner think growing up in that in that era not a lot of words so there wasn't a lot of talking so you know i'm always jealous of people that say oh gosh my dad taught me these like mantras in life I never really got any mantras, but he modeled really well. So he always modeled kind of that, um, that, you know, consistency around, you know, both work ethic, 
um, but also just, you know, the, the importance of just being very responsible. So I think that's always kind of stuck with me. I, I, you know, it's funny. I almost, as a parent, you know, I think there's a, there's a lot to be said for how you model. I think there's a, we, I think we have more influence on our kiddos and what we model than what we say. Mm. So, you know, I, I mean, I've always been very like disciplined about, you know, finances and making sure I always pay all my bills and, you know, really, really uh, not missing payments and just kind of that, that kind of rhythm and routine. So I think he gave me a lot more um, professional discipline, um, which really is helpful as an entrepreneur because no one's telling you what to do. If you don't have some kind of self-discipline, it's not a good path for you because um, you got to kind of create your own kind of rhythm and consistency. So I think that's something he really nailed. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. So um, on the career and achievements section here, we've already talked about quite a bit uh, with your career. I, one question that came to mind as, as we were talking was this, and that's um, you had, you, you studied, you've worked at some great places. Um, but what you do is at the end of the day, it's very creative uh, in nature the way that you um, consult at, at companies. Is there anything per, when you look back in your uh, formative years that maybe um, helped you develop certain skills that you tend to rely on on a daily basis, maybe more so than a, a graduate degree that you'd use on a daily basis? Probably probably going back to just walking into people's houses. To be honest with you. <laughs> And I joke about that, but seriously, it was, I, I had, it was so unstructured. It's funny, this conversation is really kind of tying together really well because it was so unstructured. I learned how to put structure around stuff. I learned how to play by myself. I learned how to keep myself occupied. I wasn't waiting for someone to tell me what to do, uh, which is just really important in my life. Because I, I, if I sit around and wait for someone to tell me what to do, I've been waiting a long time. Um, I, I've really got to be out there being creative and authoring solutions and 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 providing more of that. So it it allowed me to do that well. And I'd also say that while I work with, um, I've got great associates and I've got a business partner on some on another kind of venture that we're working on. So much of my life up to this point has been much, very much kind of like a practitioner, like a, like a doctor. I work a lot by myself. Even though I'm working with clients, it's it's a lot by myself. So having that kind of life experience of being able to just kind of, you know, figure out how to keep myself entertained and kind of uh, working by myself growing up is really kind of translated well to this because I, so I feel quite comfortable, you know, uh, working uh, in my home office all day. It doesn't doesn't bother me. Whereas I know a lot of people, it's, you know, it's like uh, their skin's crawling, not being around people. Um, mm. I, I can be around people, but I don't have to be. So I th think that's also helped a lot. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about mentors. Can you tell me uh, a little about your mentors, maybe who they were, what kind of impact they had on you, how you got connected, and um, yeah, how it's been helpful for you? Yeah, I've got a couple, uh, and they're very different. So um, I'll start with one. one uh, my uh, mentor, more on the teaching side, um, is a woman named Mary Ann Glenn. She's a um, tenured faculty member at uh, Boston College, and she was a, a professor of mine at Emory when I was getting my MBA. And then after that, she got an offer and moved to moved to Boston. And I would go up and visit her once a year and uh, guest lecture for her classes. And been doing that for, gosh, I don't know how many years, well over 10 years now. Uh, and she has been a great mentor of mine um, on the teaching side. So really helped me kind of think about teaching and navigating kind of the university politics um, and really was an encourager to my writing, that my writing was, that I had, that I had a voice that was really important to put out in the world. 
So uh, I think I think mentors, I think a good mentor should see something in you you don't see, and and help you to realize that. To me, that's what a that's what mentors are great at. That's cool. Uh, and so and so she was great in that way. I've got another mentor. His name's Len Lyritz. Um, Len came from a clinical background and then was an executive coach. Len's 77 now. Um, and uh, he, so he he did what I was doing. And right after I graduated from my MBA, I spent time with Len and he really helped me take those two things, my kind of my my uh, chocolate, which was the um, clinical therapy background and my peanut butter, which was the MBA. And he helped me learn how to put those two things together. Um, and so and he did really deep therapy work with me, which was really powerful. And he's kind of been a kind of a, a guy that even even now, Len and I probably connect once or twice a month um, and virtually. And he's just great with helping me both uh, professionally as I'm thinking about my practice and business, but even personally, because, you know, even at 46 years old, I'm going, wow, there's some stuff I probably need to think about. And it's, you know, important personal stuff that's still influencing me that I want to kind of clean up. So he's been yeah. great on, on that front, too, to both coach me, but uh, guide me and, and mentor me, but also, you know, do a little therapy when I when I need it. That's good. I like to hear that the workplace therapist seeks therapy of his own, because if it was the case where it's like, ah, oh, workplace therapist doesn't need any therapy, got everything figured out, you know? I'm, I'm perfect. Uh, I'm, I'm, I, I, I take all that back. I'm, I'm, I'm perfect. <laughs> I wouldn't be interested in hearing from you. So I'm glad to hear you're still still uh, developing because yeah, we'll never figure it all out. Um, Unfortunately, cool. disappointingly, yes. <laughs> it's like it's like the beginning of the movie The Incredibles. Have you ever seen that movie? Mr. Incredible says, I feel like the maid. I just cleaned up this place. Like, you know, I'm like, gosh, didn't I already do that work? I thought I cleaned that up. I cleaned yeah. it up like ten years ago. And yet here it comes comes back again. So yeah, I'm 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 still doing work. I'm still cleaning things up. <laughs> um tell me about your hobbies. Um what do you enjoy doing when you have some spare time? Yeah, so uh, I don't have, I don't have a lot of spare time outside of all my um, work-related activities. Um, I, I I love all the stuff I do work-related, so it does take up a lot of my time. But it's all fun because it's all creative. Like writing a book is creative, and putting out podcasts is creative. So I get those creative outlets. So on the creative side, I get that scratched through my work. Um, on the non-work-related side, there's probably two. So, gosh, my kiddos are. A big hobby and passion of mine. So I mean, we, we we've always um, we love going to Disney. So my my kids are now 18, 15, and thirteen, but they, they still love love going. And that's that's always been kind of a family tradition. We go a lot, so that's always fun. That's a kind of a fun trip that we usually take once a year. Some some years a lot a lot more than that. Um, so that's one. Uh, and then my both my boys are kind of like I said, my daughters at, at um, in college now, but both of my boys are involved in baseball. Um, so that's, that's been fun to kind of go watch them play. Um, they're both late to playing baseball. So it's, 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 uh, it's challenging. It's painful at times because they're learning and they're growing and they're getting better, but it's, you know, baseball, yeah. the sp- baseball is a sport of failure in general. So it's that, that's hard. It is. Yeah. Every sport, there, there's no good sport to like enter later than everyone else, you know, but baseball in particular, just feel it's such a mental and tough, it's like you're when you screw up, it's so visible. It's not like it's fast paced, like someone steals the ball from you in basketball, but then you're, you know, it's bang, bang, you're back down and um, down the court. But baseball is just slow. It's like, man, I struck out in front of everybody, long, depressing walk back and <laughs> or I dropped the pop fly, you know? Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely it's definitely tough. And and like um, 
Aaron, my 13-year-old, playing more more recreationally. Um, Noah started playing when he was 12 and kind of found the sport and loved it and fell in love with it and really wants to, you know, be try and be good at it. So he he plays travel baseball and all that kind of stuff. But oh wow, starting at 12 is the equivalent of starting about 16 seasons behind everybody else. Uh, particularly in where I live in North Metro Atlanta, you know, where kids start at three or four years old and they play yeah. twice a year. So you're, you're, you know, 16 seasons behind everybody else. So he's been in this kind of rapid mode of trying to, trying to catch up. So, so there's, there's that. And then I would say um, exercise is the other thing that I've been doing a lot more, more of recently. I go, I go to the gym a lot. Um, and then my wife convinced me to join orange theory. So okay. I've, been, I've been doing orange theory um, uh, for the last probably three or four weeks. Uh, I've almost died seven times. Yeah, it's close. <laughs> right, there. right there. Seven I've times. Heard, right I've there. heard from a few friends who really like Orange Theory. What what, uh, what is Orange Theory for someone who's not heard of it? Orange Theory is kind of like very controlled, focused CrossFit is, is what it is. So you've got, you've got treadmill work, you've got rowing work, and then you've got weight floor work. And they move at a very fast pace. So you, you wear kind of a heart monitor band and you start off in kind of the gray zone, you move to blue, you move to green, and then orange is where you're getting kind of where they want to keep you. And then if you go beyond orange, then you're into red. Um, and red's where you're kind of maximizing your heart rate. It's really, really high. And it's, you know, it's, you're burning lots of calories in both orange and, and red. Um, it's high intensity. I mean, you're moving, you're sprinting a lot. I mean, it's, it's an hour where you will. So in a typical hour, I'll burn, I burn a lot of calories in general because just, uh, my wife says, cause I'm a guy, but I'll burn like 900 to a thousand calories, wow. in an hour, which is a lot in an hour. You know, if I go to the gym, you know, and in, in an hour and a half, I might burn 650 or 700 calories. This is like a thousand. So it's very intense. Um, yeah. And so I, my, 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 my heart monitor is typically in the red almost the whole time. <laughs> it's not good. It's not good. Yeah. Yeah. That, but it's, but back it down I, think, I think people like it because it's so cha- it's challenging. It's kind of, you finish it you're like, Oh my gosh, I survived. And the next time you do it, you get a little bit better. So there's this kind of challenge of yeah, okay, I'm better than where I started. Like I'm, I'm seeing improvement. Um, and it, it's, it's really good for general kind of, um, losing weight, you know, overall body kind of strength and, and fitness and wellness and, uh, you know, getting tone. So, yeah. Cool. If you are uh, the type of person that gives books as a gift, tell me about a book you've given most often. If not, just tell me about maybe one or two books that have greatly influenced your life. So, um, um, I, I'm I thinking I'm, I think of a couple. So, the, the one I've, I've been talking about a lot recently, just the last couple of years, is any. any Brene Brown, I think, is really amazing. She does a lot of work around vulnerability, and I think that's important for us as leaders, particularly important for us as spouses. Vulnerability is kind of both both at the central core of, of trust, but it's also the central core of intimacy. So if you want an intimate relationship with your spouse, you can't do it without vulnerability. Um, mm. Period. Factual. Mic drop. I mean, you, you just can't. You also can't fully get to trust with your team if you can't also be willing to be vulnerable. So I love that. It's kind of a, a good central point. Um, I, oh, I can't remember the name of the book, but one of my classics I love is, pa- um, Paulo Coelho's book. Um, oh man, it'll, it'll hit me, but I love that book. It's just a general life book about finding kind of a sense of purpose. Um, once it's, it's not called the secret, I'll, I'll, I'll think about it. It'll, it'll hit me a little bit later and I'll come back to it, but that's one of my classics. Every, every few years I'll, I'll reread it or listen to it on audible. Yeah. 
since you mentioned the secret, what's your what's your opinion on the secret? Uh, you know, I do think that it can get overly used in the sense that, you know, uh, <laughs> my wife and I, oh, kid, you know, I would love to catch a fly ball, uh, at, you know, go to a baseball game and catch a fly ball. If I go to the baseball game and, you know, and kind of, you know, think about a fly ball coming to me, manifest a fly ball coming to me, a fly ball is not going to come to me. Even <laughs> if I really am in that mode, I, I cannot control a fly ball coming to me. Um, so that part, I think, is where it gets overused and overplayed. Um, however, I do think there is something to be said for the power of human will. And I do think that we as people can will things to happen in a certain degree, to a certain degree. So I think we have a lot more control over our um, our results and what was possible for us in life, you know, by by really having that, creating that vision and working hard to make it come true but just sitting in sitting in the bleachers you know hoping that things are a fly ball is going to land in my lap is probably not going to make it happen so, <laughs> I, so i think i think there's some something in something between the two i like your nuanced response <laughs> what purchase of a hundred dollars or less has most positively impacted your life in the last six months to a year can i can i give you a couple yeah okay so one of them is this guy right here, my microphone. Okay. So that's one. The second one is my two production lamps that I have over here that my um, podcast team gave me because my office has got like a lot of dark wood in it, and I'm already kind of coming in a little bit pink when you, when you can see me. I've got my lights off and these like white production lamps that go like up on the ceiling, so it makes me not quite look so pink. When um, So that's helped because everything I'm doing is Zoom, right? So everything's virtual. And the last one is um, – it's funny. Normally, I'd be buying like colored shirts or new shoes that I would wear out like if I'm going to do work. Yeah. I'm not going anywhere. So I bought some like really nice T-shirts, um, and they're super comfortable. And and I bought them on sale on like Nordstrom Rack, and they were like 15 bucks each. Mm. And uh, my 15 year old keeps trying to steal them from me. So <laughs> those were those were great. So I would say those are all three things in the last probably three to six months that I've bought that have been really impactful. Yeah, I can't remember the last time I paid for a T-shirt. So, what what are the features that you enjoy about a nice T-shirt that you don't typically get in a giveaway? Super soft, like really good, like good fitting, comfortable fit, like good form fitting, super soft. Um, it's got like a lining in it, so it's not like super thin. It's kind of got a lining, so it, it doesn't feel like a. It's not like a wicking material, like a workout shirt, but it's it's kind of in between a like that kind of workout shirt and then your plain old cotton t-shirt hmm. but it's just it just yeah looks good cool. told me my wife i don't know if she's trying to like make me feel good about orange theory but yesterday she said you're looking skinnier <laughs> i told her i said i think i, I think it's a t-shirt actually so. <laughs> uh, um how has a failure or significant obstacle in your path set you up for later success yeah. Oh man, I can think of so many. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, what week do you want to talk about? Oh, goodness. Um, so I'll just hit a couple. Roll, roll fast. Um, so when I was getting my MBA, I said I want to do consulting because I thought that's was the next natural next step for me. Human capital consulting. Interviewed, um, looking for a consulting internship, and every single one of those consulting firms turned me down. 
every single one of them. And they end up getting a great job, a great internship at Chick-fil-A, helping them redesign kind of how they train and develop their operators, the franchise owners. So Chick-fil-A is an amazing company. Yeah, not a, not a, Probably not a name brand internship like a Bain or a McKinsey or whatever, but a um, they know what they're doing and they are so good at it. They're, they execute on their strategy so well. I couldn't have been, I couldn't have had a better internship because you learn how to do that so well. You, and they, they're better than any publicly traded company because they're private. So they're not chasing quarterly results. So they can yeah. actually do strategy. Yeah. Like doing tactics, yeah. pretending it's strategy. They can that actually a drop moment right there. Yeah. They can actually do it. They can say, look, three years out, we're going to do this thing and we're going to, we're going to, we're going to bite the bullet. So even if you drive around right now, You'll see particularly Metro Atlanta leveling Chick-fil-A's, leveling them down to the ground, closing them for six months. And it's not because there's anything wrong with the stores. It's because the drive-thrus can't handle the volume. So they're actually reconfiguring the parking lots and drive-thrus to handle all the cars. Nothing, yeah. to the, nothing to do with the building itself. Well, if you were a publicly traded company, you would not want to lose that revenue. Chick-fil-A doesn't care. They'll just level it for six months and build it bigger and better. Yeah. Um, so they can be more strategic. So I learned a lot during that. So having not gotten that in the um, consulting internships and getting Chick-fil-A, not only equipped, well, and then during the Chick-fil-A internship, the work that we did was better than the work that they had hired. And I'm not going to name the name, but another well-known consulting firm did. So they took the methodology that myself and the, the internal Chick-fil-A team was using, and they put that in front of the work that the other consulting firm did. And it made me, it gave me confidence to say, oh, I, if, if it's that good, I, I could do this. So it gave Hell me confidence. yeah, man. That's awesome. Yeah. So, so that was a great experience. Um, probably the only, the only other one I would also add was just, you know, I think um, for many years, both doing, I did NPR, then I was on other radio affiliates and I thought I was waiting for someone to give me a radio show and no one was doing it. And I finally realized, well, why am I waiting? Why don't I just start my own podcast? So I think just having that kind of failure of not being picked, you know, still standing on the sidelines. Yeah, yeah. He said, "Well, why? Why am I waiting for someone else to anoint me? Why just do it myself?" So I think I think those, those failures gave me confidence to kind of you know, um, kind of not wait for someone else and to kind of you know do it on my own. Now, of course, as an entrepreneur, every week there's failures when I'm you know either investing in something and it doesn't quite work out the way I want it to. Do. Lots of like you know. Um, little beta tests is kind of the life of an entrepreneur, um, waiting for those, you know, big things to work out. Sure. So if we think about, uh, topics that you have developed and, uh, some knowledge or expertise in as over your life, um, aside from your profession, which topic, if you could like take that topic that you have now in your head, download all your info, go back to 22 year old Brandon and plug it in. What would that be? Aside from what was the, what was the thing? Aside, I, I aside do? from sort of workplace therapy. So, so something, some wisdom you've gained over the years you wished you knew when you were 22, aside from being an expert in your profession. Okay. Here's an easy one. I don't have a tattoo, by the way, but I've always wanted one. And, and if I got a tattoo, this is probably what it would be. So my experience has been all the people who achieve great things in life, who really change the world, whether we talk about people building companies or people with social movements, um, they have these three rare tools, okay? So you can almost think of them like a triangle. So the first one is purpose. They've got a clear sense of purpose. They have that North Star, which guides them. 
So when they're lost in the woods, they can look up in the middle of the night and they see, oh, there's the North Star. The second thing they have is they have courage. They have that courage to take the first step. So they're still, they're stuck in the woods. It's dark. They can't see, but they're taking that first step towards purpose. And for some people, that first step can be the hardest. And the third one they got is they've got faith. And, you know, faith can be your spiritual faith. Faith can just be, you know, it's going to work out. You know, faith, faith begins when data ends. And so that's the second step in the woods. That's what keeps them going. So they're taking the first step. The faith is they keep, they keep walking. Mm. Okay, so those are our three jewels. In the center of all that, the thing that lights them all up is this thing that I don't know what a better word to call it than will. And we talked about will earlier, but they've got this will, this fire in their belly. So when they fall down, they hit that stump in the woods and they fall down, will tells them to get back up and they continue to walk down that path. So um, I, I, that's what I would stick as a tattoo on my arm. Um, and because I just think that's so important to, to remind myself always that it's all about keeping myself focused on purpose, not be afraid. Uh, fear can just be paralyzing. So have mm. that courage to move forward and faith, knowing that it's going gonna, it's gonna to work out even if you can't, you have no data and you can't really see what's in front of you just to keep moving forward. Cool. You got a, a tattoo that ages well. <laughs> well, that's the key. You got to find one that ages well, you know? Yeah. A good one when you're 23 doesn't age well, but mm. to, but that, that might age well. Yeah. Okay. In the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? Hmm. Well, I want to say something super profound, but I don't have something super profound. But I, well, the first thing that comes to mind is, is different. So when I was 38, working out in the gym, I tweaked my back. And, and it just, my back was never right for like six years. It was just not, just didn't feel good. And, and I, and I'd go see an orthopedist and, you know, they would say, oh, well, you know, you're going to have to have surgery at some point. It's, it's a de degenerative disc or whatever. Um, well, I got connected with a woman that does posture work and it's almost like customized yoga. So she has me do these different kind of poses and stretches completely changed my life, like fixed hmm. my back completely. Like I'm a complete, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a champion. Like I've got no, no issues way. at all and allows me to do orange theory and everything else. Not one pain at all. And I, and it's a simple routine of stuff that I know works for my body really well. So even when I go to the gym, after I work out and do cardio and lift weights, I go in the mat and I do all these stretches and it's like, it just, it's got me, whatever it was, this muscle was just super tight and twisted. So even though I do like chiropractic, the muscle would just pull me back out of alignment. So yeah. it just helped me kind of loosen that all up and get it in the right place. Completely. What is like the name of the life. expert that you spoke to? Yes, yeah, sir. So um, the the name of the work that she does, it's called Egoscu. It's named after the founder, a guy named Pete Egoscu. How is it spelled? E-G-O-S-C-U-E. Egoscu. Okay. And her name is Kathy Mulheron. She's now moved to New Mexico, but she can do it virtually. Um, and she was amazing. Like she could just see me standing and she'd be like, oh yeah, do this, do this weird pose. And I do this weird pose and I'd say, oh yeah, I feel better. Uh, yeah. Amazing. So the best way I can describe it is like customized yoga. Cause a lot of it is yoga stuff, but rather than just going through a yoga routine, it was very much designed based on my build, my build and my body and, and what it needed. So she would say, oh, your hips out of alignment. Let's do this thing right now. Yeah. Fix it. It's life-changing. I like that. I like the testimonial there because it's a, it's like an area of, 
um, medicine or, or wellness. Uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of questionable, you know, practices that are professed. But it's like if this one works, and and uh, I can see there, someone who's an expert, they can just look at you and tell them and hear your hips here, move your shoulder back, whatever it is, and um, that that can make a huge difference on your well-being. Totally. And I had, I was complaining about my back on my podcast. And a listener like typed in was like, Hey, you really need to go see Kathy Mulheron. And then no way. Yeah, that was how I felt. I was like, Well, what the hell? I've tried everything else. I mean, I tried really everything else. Yeah, yeah. I tried massage therapy, chiropractic, um, everything else. Uh, and and then Kathy fixed it. I mean, I'm serious, like fixed it. That's cool. I'm gonna check that out because both me and my wife would be interested in that. Yeah. Um, all right. So talking about family, you've mentioned your family quite a bit, you know, like uh, favorite vacations, maybe going to Disney World regularly. Um, t- tell me a little about your family and um, what's something that you wish new dads knew before being a dad? Yeah. Um, OK, so I've got three kiddos. Uh, my daughter's 18. Abby, she's a freshman at University of Georgia. Noah's 15. He's a sophomore at Roswell High School. And then Aaron is 13 year old and he is an eighth grader at Crabapple Middle School. So I got a college freshman, high school sophomore, and then an eighth grader. Um, so a couple things about all of them have really strong personalities. Um, all of them are very different personalities. So I would say kind of going to your point around, you know, new parents, new dads. Uh, it's, it's like Forrest Gump. It's like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. And they're all going to come out different. And it's just, it's, that's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes those personalities can be freaky in that they might remind you of another person in your family. So like Noah, my 15 year old is like my dad. It's like, I'm raising my dad and Abby, my 18 year old is like my mom. So it's a really freaky experience to be raising my parents. Uh, <laughs> she's really, really weird, really yeah. weird. bizarre, but that's, that is, that's, that is what that is. Um, we, we, one of the traditions that I do that I, I really loved, um, that I would want to share is talk about Disney. Well, every we go as family and we've, we've done that a bunch, but whenever my kids are 12, just me and them, I'll take me and that one kiddo to Disney for like three or four days and they get to plan everything, plan all the restaurants we're going to go to, the parks we're going to go to, the rides we're going to ride. It's just all about them. They don't have to negotiate with their siblings. Um, and every single one of them have said like, that is just like a very special experience for them. Cause it's just me and them and they don't, and they can do whatever they want. And it's a great time for us to just connect. And I kind of stumbled on um, that age 12, but I think that is the perfect age because huh. they're, they're just kind of transitioning from, there's still parts of them that are still kiddos. They're still kind of elementary school when they're 12. Yeah. Like, like they'll still like look at the stuffed animals and say, God, I want one of those stuffed animals um, when they're 12. Whereas they might not do that when they're 14 or 15. And they still, they still don't mind hanging out with you, too. So I, yeah. I think that's a really – if you can find a, a trip you can do with them that's just you and them when, when they're 12, um, I think that would be a really cool thing to do as a dad. It's a really – it's a memorable experience that they'll hold on to forever. So I would I would say that. Um, gosh, there's so many other things we could go. What, what else do you mean to share? Um, in what way? So you're a husband and a father. Yep. Let's think about both of those roles. In in what ways are you a better husband than three to five years ago? And in what ways are you a better father than three to five years ago? Yeah. Um, 
so let's talk about husband first. So I think when they are, so for me, when the kids were zero to four, that was the hardest. I don't even remember those years. I mean, you're, it's just like, it's, you know, and now we're, you know, we're, we're not playing man-to-man defense. We're zone defense because we got three. So mm-hmm. super hard. Um, and, and it's, and I, I was, when we, when our kids were little, we always did date night. We always try and do a date night once a month. And I'm a big fan of doing date nights, super big fan of, of spending at least one or two nights out every year in a, just both just to stay out. Like you go, you could be a hotel just down the street, but you do, you just stay out, stay away from home. Um, so number one, simple tip when dads are got young kiddos, find a babysitter you trust. I know too many parents who, particularly the mom, will like freak out about not getting a babysitter because she just doesn't find anybody she trusts. Bad move. Bad, bad move. Get a babysitter you trust because you want that. You need that time away. Um, now that our kids are older, we've actually found more time together and more time to talk and realize, wow, there's some stuff that like, you know, we just didn't have time to deal with before, time to talk about before. So in many ways, we've had some deeper conversations, more intimate conversations, and even some harder conversations, frankly. So um, I think when, when you kind of get that breather and your kids get older, um, first you realize, oh my gosh, it's a little bit easier. Then you realize, wow, there's some stuff I want to keep working on or stuff I want to improve. Because it's hard to have a really intimate, connected relationship when you're in the middle of putting out a million fires, which is what it's like to have any kiddo in single digits. <laughs> whether it's three years old or seven years old or multiple ones you're, you're dealing with and, and people who don't have kids don't get that they don't realize you know they wake up and you know they wake up whenever they want to and have coffee and listen to a little bit of music and sit, sit, sit at the kitchen table <laughs> you know and they're like oh this is so hard oh, it's so hard and you're like no you don't know what it's like to be woken up with just a scream yeah like just a scream and you walk in the room and you don't know what bodily fluid you're going to find <laughs> it could be, be lots of different colors. It could be red, brown, color you don't really recognize. Yeah. And and that's what it's like to be a, a parent. You're just like it's like being woken up with a shotgun. Yeah. Um, and, and that is that's parenting up until you get them passed into double digits. So um I think there's different seasons that all have different elements. The only other thing I would add to this too is um be really thoughtful about what your parenting philosophy is. What are you trying to teach them? What, what matters to you in life? And it doesn't really matter what it is, but you've got to be intentional about it. Because if you're not intentional about it, travel football and travel baseball and travel basketball and travel gymnastics and travel swimming and travel everything else will tell you what your philosophy should be. Um, and it'll always involve them being first, by the way. So you know what really matters to you? Um, and I think it's important you do that because I know lots of people who have just bought into that and their kids are really not good students, really behind the curve, because they've just decided that sports are the path to the future. Um, and, and that's their philosophy, whether they, whether they are aware of that or not. So I don't care if you choose that, just be really intentional and that's what you're doing. So coming up with your own, you know, personal philosophy is, is, is important as a parent. Hmm. I like that. Speaking of uh, having a philosophy and a plan on what to teach them, I think about uh, mental toughness and accountability and just, ownership uh, as a, important principles for kids to learn. What, what's been your approach to instilling those principles in your kids? Yeah, great. I agree with all those things. Um, here's, here's a great little nugget that I've always taught my kids. They, I don't have to use it anymore because they've heard me use it enough. Um, decision makers pay. 
great life principle. So early on, you know, like say Noah, he would be like, you know, my wife would be cooking dinner and she put down Noah would say, I don't like this for dinner. Well, I would, I would turn out and say, everybody, Noah is showing true leadership. He doesn't like what we're having for dinner. He, he wants something else. So he's going to go up to his room. He's going to get his wallet. He's buying everybody pizza tonight. And Noah <laughs> would kind of look at me and he'd look down. He'd be like, no, mom, dinner's really, really good. <laughs> because I think sometimes when I see parents go wrong, they give their kids decision-making power that they should not have. Mm. Decision makers pay. So even like Abby would want to get involved in how we're parenting Noah or Aaron or disciplining. I'd say, Abby, you're welcome to join us in that conversation. You can be a member of the senior leadership team. It's $1,000 a month. That's the fee to join the senior leadership team. You pay me $1,000 <laughs> a month, then you can sit here at this table and we can talk about how to raise your brothers. But if you have $1,000 a month, you can't be at the senior leadership team table because we're, we're paying all the bills. Decision makers pay. So if, if you want to be a decision maker, you got to pay too. I like that. Decision makers pay. Decision makers pay. And they got mad at me because we moved into a bigger house and I raised it to $2,000 a month. I was like, wait a minute. I thought that was $1,000 a month. I was like, yeah. Expenses went up. As if they were going to start paying you a thousand. <laughs> it didn't really matter. But it's, but it, but that, oh, it's a funny conversation. Um, it's an important one because there's the role clarity matters. When you put kids in decision-making roles, they shouldn't be in. They know that it creates anxiety. They're like, deep down. They're like, I shouldn't be the parent here. I shouldn't be the one making this call. And it creates anxiety. So, you can you can manage that by making sure they understand. No, no, no. You know this is this is this is my job. That's your job. You stay in your lane. I stay in my lane. Or uh, well, I, my, my my lane can go into your lane, but you can't come into my lane. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree on all that. Thank you. I like the way you stated it. Um, do you have any tips for someone like me or any others in the audience who have kids that will be teenagers in a few years? Uh, you've got. You've got a. Uh, you've successfully navigated that. What, any thoughts as we begin to move into the teenage years? Yeah. So I'm gonna th- I'm gonna channel. So there's a guy named Tim Elmore. He kind of specializes in millennials and now Gen Z. Someone asked him this question, similar question, several years ago, and he said, um, up until kind of their age nine or ten, you just tell them they're amazing, love you, you're talented, you're incredible, you can do anything. And then after they get to about that level of 10, you need to tell them like, no, you're not perfect. The world's got, you know, you need to work on these things. And, and I think it's important that um, you're you're honest with your kids. You know, you, you, you love your kids. You tell them that, but you also hold them accountable. I mean, hold them accountable, make them responsible, make them, make them responsible for cleaning their room, make them responsible for learning how to do their laundry or, or cleaning or taking their plates up at night. Giving them that kind of responsibility is really important because um, teenagers are just going to be a, a larger and bigger version of what you've got. They mm. won't mature on their. It's not like oh, they're 15 now they're mature. Not, hormones are not going to mature a human being. They're just going to. It's just like giving booster fuel to what you've already got. So do the hard work now, like do the hard work when they're kind of in their eight, nine, 10, 11, you know, and hold them responsible and accountable to stuff because you try and start doing that when they're 16 and 17, it's going to be a lot harder, a lot harder. And mm-hmm. your, your, your data point you need to be tracking around this is their level of anxiety. Because when there is a sense of ownership and a sense of initiative, 
what that's really saying is there's a sense of agency. Like I'm enough. I can, I can do this. If you're rescuing them all the time, you're just going to create anxiety because rescuing tells them you're not enough. You need me. You can't have that conversation with the teacher. You need me to do that. I, mean, I We had our kids having their, they had an issue with the teacher. Even though we would get really mad hearing about it, I would hold back and I would say, "You, Abby, why don't you have that conversation? And if you can't get anywhere, then bring us in. So she was having those conversations at eight, nine, and 10. Like, yeah, and, and it grew her confidence. Yeah. So if they're anxious, that should be your cue that they don't believe they're enough. So how can you kind of instill that confidence in them? So, you know, whatever life gives them, they're going to be like, yeah, I can, I can, I can deal with that. Because life, as we know, is unpredictable and uncertain. And your ability to be resilient is directly correlated to your ability to have that sense of agency. Um, and, and we can, it's hard to teach will. When we talk about will, it's, I, I don't know how to put will into an adult. Give mm. them confidence, that fire in their belly. But you can do it in kids. So focus on that. So the biggest thing is don't rescue them. Let them struggle. Let them learn from it. And, and that's hard because when our kids hurt, we hurt twice as much. When they're crying in their room, we're crying just as much. So yep. let them struggle through that and don't don't rescue them. And that's hard. And that, that that's probably my biggest tip I would give for parents is, you know, they'll get stronger every time they do that. But if you if you keep rescuing them, not only are they not going to get stronger, they're going to think they're not enough. I like that. What approach have you found works best when it comes to access to phones and devices for kids in the house? The man, this was, this is tough because we just kind of missed that window. Like Aaron's 13. So when he was growing up, there wasn't tablets to stick in front of him. So he, we did, he didn't really have that. Um, and he's our youngest. So I would say our, both, Aaron and Noah use their phones a decent bit, but not, not all the time. Although Aaron's pretty bad about it. Now I think about it. <laughs> I don't have a really good answer for your question. I would say general rule of thumb, never allowed at the dinner table, never allowed at the dinner table or sure. Um, exercise or going outside. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's important too. Uh, you know, I, 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 I feel less equipped to answer this question than others just because, yeah. because if, if, if we had, ju- if we had waited like four years before we had kids, then it, I think I could answer that better. We just, we just didn't have that. I, but I would just say, generally speaking, I think that, um, our table is the other one too, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a, big believer that when you're out, you know, at a restaurant, you know, you, you look a server in the eye and you order. So we'd always teach our kids to order by themselves, not looking to us to order for them. But if you're oh, stuck with exactly. a phone and a phone or a tablet, you know, you, you can't do that. Yeah. So. yeah. A um, couple, a couple of little more serious questions and then we'll wrap up with the conclusion. So um, on a individual, let, um, you know, let's say how about this? Have you ever run out of give a damn for a period of time as an adult? And if so, how'd you get out of it? Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, 
in terms of just in general or in in general, whatever just, comes just to mind. Yeah. Yeah. I would say the last, <laughs> the last couple of years. Yeah. I, um, I, one of my, one of my, so one of the drawbacks, both my per- personality as well as what, you know, uh, made me successful early on, but you know, can hurt me now is I tend to say yes a lot. And what happened was I, I was saying yes to a lot of things. I was traveling a lot. I was just, yes, yes, yes. And I was just getting burned out. Just getting burned out. And constantly people would be like, you know, wanting to get calls with me, even if they couldn't pay me. And I would say, yes, I'll, help. I'll, I'll, I'll work with you. So I distinctly remember a moment. This was um, someone that I offered to do kind of free coaching with um, just a couple calls. And I was taking a call with her after I'd driven home from the gym and I was sitting in my car and it was like 730 at night, almost eight o'clock. And, you know, my family's getting ready to sit down and have dinner. And she's just not wanting to do anything productive. She really just wants to complain. And she wants me to listen to her complain for about an hour. And I just realized I'm like, I, I, I don't want to do this anymore. Like, you mm. know, I'm burnout. I want to be home with my family. And I told her, you know, I would help her, but she's really not bought into this. And so I was getting resentful. And so the way I kind of started to move out of that was um, set better boundaries around my calendar to prevent burnout. So I, I stopped taking calls before 9 a.m. Um, and after 4, 4 p.m. Um, now, I with the flexibility that I can, uh, if I if I choose to, or there's time zone issues. But as a general rule, I pre- pre- preserved and protected all my work hours between nine to four. Uh, when I was dealing with clients, not to say I'm not working another hours, but that was all my you know client stuff. Um, just so I had more time protected both for exercise, but also my family. So I think boundaries is a really was a really important thing for me around Good. that. Yeah. And then let's go on a micro, you know, on a daily basis when you're feeling overwhelmed, anxious, mad, just generally having a bad day. Uh, what have you found that helps you to get out of it? If I can make myself do it, exercise. If I can make myself do it, that works really, really well. Um, sometimes taking a nap can work. Um, if, I, if, if it's because I'm tired, because sometimes when I get in a bad mood, it's just because I'm tired. Like I'm just, you know, um, but you know, the other thing is, I'll just uh, a simple tactical thing. I'll go on YouTube and I'll find some really funny videos, and I'll just watch some hysterical videos and just get myself laughing and rolling, and that will like that will turn it around too. So it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be an hour, two hours. It can be just fifteen minutes of just watching some really hysterical videos. <laughs> Are like, there oh, any particular right. YouTube uh, content creators you recommend people check out? Well, for- Recently, um, I found this guy. He's really funny. It's um, you probably I've probably heard of him before. His name's Ozzy Man. He's from Australia, and he okay. just comments on you know videos that are out, um, and he does it with a funny Australian accent. I think it's, yeah. funny. it's Australian. Um, uh, not that I'm trying to offend anyone who's Australian. Got clients who are Australian, but the way he says it is just hysterical, and he just does such a great job of of making it really funny. So, um, yeah, I'll, I'll watch some of his videos and it's just, it's just, it'll just get me rolling. I can agree to that with, um, any, you know, whether it's English, South African, Australian, New Zealand, just, it's the same language, but that different accent gives you, definitely gives you a leg up, uh, in another market when it comes to humor. It's just a little bit funny. <laughs> well, it's got, it's got phrases like fair dinkum, like I, you know, fair dinkum apparently is, is a proxy for like genuine or genuinely. Hmm. So I say, Sean, you're a fair dinkum. Good guy. So he uses phrases like that just makes me laugh. Yeah. So I, you know, if you find stuff that makes you laugh, it's good. Yeah, for sure. All right. Tell me one thing you're thankful. 
and one thing that you look forward to doing in the next 12 months? Uh, I'm super thankful that um, I've, I've still been able to work, even the, given this weird environment of not being able to travel and being kind of stuck in the office, that there's still plenty of meat in the world for, that I can meet and still be productive and also still kind of keep the lights on. So I'm, I'm really thankful for that because while I can sit here and tap myself on the shoulder and say, oh, I, you know, I made that happen, I, 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 can't, I didn't. I just, it just so happened that you know, there, was, there was enough need that, you know, I don't know how, how it worked out, but I'm, I'm really thankful for that. Uh, in 2021, the big thing I'm really looking forward to next year, um, in addition to just continuing to find new and fun things to do with my family, because you know every time you figure out a life stage of your kids, it changes because they get older. So in addition to finding new and fun things we can do, like actually going places would be nice. Like getting on a plane would actually be nice. <laughs> yeah. a thing called a hotel could be really cool. Um, I've uh, got plans to write my next book. So in addition to doing some travel next year and, and just enjoying the stuff that we haven't been able to, I'm starting my next book. So that's that's my that's my big thing I'm looking forward to. Awesome. Um, and before we let you go, a couple of questions. Do you have any, any show podcasts that you want to recommend other people to check out? Right now, gosh. Uh, man, um, it's a really good question. I don't have a good one right now that I'm really just – I go through them and I'm like, oh yeah, I'm gonna move to another one. I'm I'm kind of in between right now. Yeah, all good, no worries. Um, what is a good cause that you wish more people knew about or were maybe thinking about more often? Uh, so I'm uh, this is Italian. I'm biased on this. So naturally, the Make a Wish Foundation. I'm a very big big fan of that. Um, there's a there's a more even focused version of it called um, Give Kids of the World, and it's based in um, Orlando, Florida. And it's it's basically kind of these really cool kind of themed kind of housing for kids with terminal illnesses that they can go there and stay and then have great these magical experiences either at Disney or Universal with their families. So um, that's it's an incredible incredible nonprofit and incredible kind of mission. Um, yeah. To, you know, because since it's the, since that has been so close to my family's heart to be able to kind of do that particularly for families that are going through that tough time, uh, I'm a I'm a huge fan of what they do. That's awesome. Brandon, is it, we've had a pretty wide ranging interview. Is there anything we should have covered that we didn't get to talk about today? I don't think so. I think we covered a lot. Man, I really enjoyed learning from you. You had uh, really good insights in the professional sense as well as on the personal and, and family. So um, I'm looking forward to listening to this one when it's all done. So thank you that. for coming. Uh, when For people who are looking to follow you, maybe check out your podcast and, and find your books, where can people find you? Easiest place to go is theworkplacetherapist.com. You can even Google the workplace therapist and you'll find me. I'm the, I'm the only one. So and that's where my blog is, my podcast. Um, you can find my book off of my website that way, or you can also find it off of Amazon. It's, it's the hot sauce principle, how to live and lead in a world where everything is urgent all the time. Awesome. So much for coming. My pleasure. Thanks, Sean. Hey, thanks for listening. If you like the show, please send me a note on LinkedIn. It makes me smile every time. And I also want to say that your constructive criticism is strongly encouraged. If notes aren't your thing, it'd be great to have you subscribe, share the show with a friend, 
or write a review of the show in your podcasting platform so that awesome strangers who don't know either of us can be more likely to find the show. Thanks again, and I hope you have a great day.